Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This is Climate One. I'm Ariana Brocious. And I'm Greg Dalton. It's that time of year when we gather with friends and family to celebrate what we're grateful for, maybe eat too much, and navigate some difficult conversations. Yeah, for some reason, Thanksgiving seems to bring out a lot of those difficult conversations. But in spite of what we see in Congress or maybe even in the courts or the the media, we actually are on the same page around climate much more than a lot of us think. Most Americans support climate action. And regardless of political leaning, basically all of us want a habitable planet. That makes sense. It's the only one we have. And people on the left and right experience the same devastating floods, the same life-threatening heat waves, and catastrophic wildfires. Yet we tend to live in social bubbles, information bubbles, and we see problems and solutions through different lenses. We use different language. But there are a lot of people actually working to bridge this divide. One of those is Republican John Curtis, who represents Utah's third district in the House. He's chair of the Conservative Climate Caucus, and we actually had him on the show earlier this year and invited him back. Right. And I like talking with John because we're able to listen and share and laugh and we see things differently, use different language. And I think these are the kinds of conversations we really need to have across the divide to address climate in a durable way. Plus, there's been some new developments in the House since we last talked. Of course, a new speaker, Mike Johnson. And so we wanted to check in and see what's changed. Congressman, welcome back to Climate One. I'm excited to talk to you again. Thanks for being a Republican coming on a climate show. (laughs) Imagine that, right? (laughs) I watched your video on electrifying your home. Very cool. I saw the solar, of course, and then the batteries. And then I saw the water part, I was like, oh, this guy's really getting into it. He's doing energy and water. And your video was the first time I heard of a climate-friendly dog door. So (laughs) kudos for that. Why did you do all that work and spend all that money? You know, there's a couple of reasons. One is, obviously, uh, I, I do a lot in this space, and I thought it would be very hypocritical if I was building a home and didn't do it. Um, I also wanted to learn. It was a, it was a very a good learning uh, opportunity for me. And so, I, uh, you know, in each of the things that we chose to do, we spent a lot of time researching alternatives. And then I would say, number three, I'm absolutely convinced that these can be done in a way that is long-term saves me money. Uh, I say long-term because some of it, uh, you know, there is some upfront cost with it, but my wife and I plan on being in that home the rest of our lives. So it's somewhere between one year and 50 years, I'm going to be living in that home. And um, I want to save money. I'm very thrifty. and I wanted to save money. 
And you mentioned tax credits in the IRA for home electrification. Did you take advantage of those and how big a deal were they for you? Yeah. So I, I, I want to be clear because some people feel like, uh, you know, a, a Republican that didn't vote for the IRA shouldn't take advantage of those tax uh, opportunities. But uh, with some modification, they were all there even before the IRA, uh, the solar credit and the geothermal credit. And by the way, I was making my decisions before the IRA came along. But those credits, I mean, they clearly influenced uh, my buying decisions It's uh, to do the solar, particularly the geothermal. just would have been very hard uh, to get to pencil without the help. Right. I did home electrification, uh, did an induction cooktop, took out the propane, many of the things you did. That's good. And I think that to really address climate, it takes more than some privileged white guys, you know, doing, putting in cool things in their houses. Would, would you agree? So I would agree. But let me let me just bring up this point. I feel like uh, too often uh, many of us uh, don't want to change our lifestyles when we point to Washington, D.C. and say, why don't you mm-hmm. fix this? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I don't think we should underestimate the, the, the millions of small things. You know, when I was mayor of, of my city, uh, we had a valley with a uh, half million residents. And I used to say, look, if each of you would cut one vehicle trip per week, that is a half a million vehicle trips per week. And I, I totally understand what you're saying, but I don't think we should um, we should disincentive or, or overlook the value of individuals saying, no, I'm in this too, and I'm not going to only look to my federal government to solve this. Right. That's that's fair. Personal change is hard. It's easy to say someone else should change or, or do something. I saw that you met with some Olympians about reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Utah's in the running to host the 2030 Winter Olympics. Many of those events would happen at ski resorts in your district. What do you see as your role in that effort from a climate standpoint? First of all, let me say, use this opportunity to point out, uh, in, a, in a very red state, Utah, we're a very conservative state, uh, we do uh, a lot of oil and gas and coal, that one of the ways that we can get people turned on to this conversation is to show them how it impacts them directly. So in Utah, when you talk about the ski industry, um, people, they all of a sudden sit up and listen and say, okay, I'm listening, right? And, mm-hmm. and it's not, and so it's it's easier for me to point out the shortness of the ski season the, the, that is starting later and ending sooner than it is some of the something you know 10,000 miles away or th- 2,000 miles away and so I, I think this is a really good opportunity to say look local uh, situations sometimes are what what it's going to take to get people engaged and for me two things well really three things have been very important pointing out what it's doing to the ski industry in Utah uh, pointing out the wildfires uh, that we're having and uh, the drought and these are three easy places for very conservative Utahns to jump into this conversation and to care. And uh, let me tell you, they care deeply about the Great Salt Lake and uh, the shortage of water. Utahns, regardless of the political affiliation, they care deeply about forest fires. They care deeply about the ski season. And, it, and these are not political issues. And so uh, for me, uh, having these things in my state ha- has been a, a good opportunity to, to, to get people engaged who might not otherwise engage in this conversation. Sure, makes sense. Raking it a local issue, it's often seen as far away in time and space. Many people expected you to run for the Senate seat vacated by the retiring Mitt Romney. Why did you decide to stay in the House and not try to go for the Senate? So this is a very complicated question. And all (laughs) all I'm going to say is, uh, let's just say it's not over. How How about that? Ah, okay. All righty. Well, let's be there's some change in polling or something there. You know, well, you, 
It, it's not a change in polling. The, the, the initial polling was incredibly positive. I, I think it's fair to say that since I announced that I wasn't running, there's been a drumbeat that is is loud and consistent, um, asking me to reconsider, including my wife and my children and, and many people close to me. And that drumbeat is getting louder and actually, quite frankly, a little bit more organized. And so all of those things, you know, are, are, are consistent and loud enough for me to, to do a little bit of reevaluation. Interesting. So as a former Democrat, you think that you're looking at a statewide run in Utah. Will you keep climate as part of your views if you try to go for that bigger seat? Well, for good or bad, I've been associated in Utah with climate. And uh, you might enjoy this uh, tomorrow night at my home. I'll be back in Utah. I have invited uh, 50 to 60 of the furthest right people I can find. And our topic will be climate. And it'll be the, about the fourth or fifth or maybe even sixth dinner that I've done uh, with uh, my very good far-right friends because um, it's hard to come into my home and listen to, to me talk for an hour without them understanding why they should be engaged, why they should care. And that, by the way, they don't have to abandon their conservative values to be very good at this. And I, I make a pretty strong case for that. Well, that's interesting because elsewhere in this episode, we have a former aide for Mitch McConnell talking with the co-founder of MoveOn.org, the progressive organization. And it's just about that, how getting people from different sides or different parts of a spectrum that, that you're not doing left and right, I understand. Are you going to change your language when you speak to your far right friends about climate? How do you get different people together around climate and, and talk about it yeah. without them shutting down right away? So it's a great question. And I think we do this on a number of issues and not just climate. I think you could point to immigration and other issues where we just quickly bring up these, these, these words or these terms that are divisive, that spread us apart. And at the end of the day, there's actually very little that separates us on climate as Republicans and Democrats. And there's far more that we agree on. And Republicans do want to leave this earth better than we found it. We have ideas on reducing emissions. And I think a lot of Republicans make the assumption that to be good on climate, they have to embrace the Green New Deal. Hmm. No, they have to bring their ideas to the table. Uh, to be good on climate, if that does that make sense, and and let's debate those ideas, and and let's let's agree that less pollution is better than more pollution, and so so what are those ideas that reduce emissions? And um, I don't talk to people a lot about the science, but I do talk to them a lot about what I consider to be a innate, born inside all of us desire to leave this earth better than we found it, and how do we express that? And I also talk a lot about the fact that the, the myth is that we need to give up energy independence. The myth is that we need to give up low prices. The myth is that we have to give up affordability to reduce emissions. And I think that's turned a lot of Republicans off, that myth. And so we talk about the fact that, like, let me show you how we do this without sacrificing energy independence. Let me show you how we do this without sacrificing affordability, reliability. And uh, when we redistrict, I was given uh, oil and gas in my new part of my district, and I went out to visit with them. And I said, hey, they, they said to me, I don't think this is going to work. You're the climate guy. Have you not noticed we're oil and gas? And I explained to them my philosophy of how they can actually be part of the solution. And nobody had told them that before. They've always been told they're the problem. And they like being engaged and they like being challenged and they like knowing what under terms and conditions they can actually be part of the solution and my highest percentage of reelect came from the oil and gas part of my district 
Yeah, I think it's actually called Carbon County. I've been out there. Um, so you have, oh, didn't mention faith. Of course, many Mormons uh, in Utah, you yourself are LDS. There's been some moves lately to get, you know, something of an environmental creation care as part of the faith. You know, how is that going to be part of the conversation when you bring sure. these far right friends? Yeah, you are right. By the way, the official name of the church is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. People know us by Mormons, by LDS, but officially that is that is our name. And part of the doctrine is stewardship of this earth. And um, I don't think we talk about that enough. And uh, I think that's one of the ways I do connect with people. I mentioned, I think we're we're born with this innate desire. I think that, in my opinion, that comes from God to leave this earth that he created better than we found it. And it's a big part of my conversation. And it's a big part of the way I connect with Utahns, and not just Utahns, but really people all over the country, I think, share that uh, with us. Does that include science? I know that there's some very good climate scientists in Utah, BYU and University of Utah. Does science come into that? Yeah, but you know what's interesting is I I I find that science is very convenient for people. Uh, I like to point out sometimes my colleagues on the left like to pick what science they're going to use. The the reality of it is, and I don't care if it's the science of COVID or it's the science of climate or the science of whatever it is, that if we're not careful, science is not a very good motivator. And I would show you know to my friends on the left, I'd say you know, how's it working for you? Uh, trying to convince Republicans with, with science that they should be engaged. It, it hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I think I can show you, you know, what does work. And um, I don't think we should have that litmus test out there that if you're going to engage on a climate discussion, you have to agree with me on the science. No, can we just have the litmus test that you want to leave the earth better than, than we found it? And that's a very different way to engage people, people of different political philosophies and, and just take that temperature down, right, of, look, do you want to prove yourself right on science or do you want to get Republicans engaged to talk climate? Well, I think we want to get Republicans engaged, right? Cool. Yeah, that's totally fair. It's complicated. You mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act earlier, which you voted yes. against, I think you said, because Republican ideas were not included. It passed on a straight party line vote. Politico reported earlier this year that $198 billion is going into Republican districts because of the IRA. Nancy Mace praised the Volvo plant in Ridgeville, South Carolina, for making all EVs by 2030. No gas-powered cars. She voted against it. And some people are trying to claw back that law. Help me understand why your colleagues are trashing the law that's sending money and jobs into their districts. I think this is really important. And if Democrats want to engage us, they, they need to understand this point that I'm going to make. So imagine being a House Republican. Uh, imagine no ability to even offer an amendment on the IRA. Uh, imagine being asked to spend $1.5 trillion at a time when inflation is rampant and the, and the debt is soaring and given no input on the bill. In truth, there are many provisions in the IRA that actually started out as Republican ideas. And I'd point to, to nuclear and, and carbon sequestration and direct air capture. The Republicans, hydrogen. There's a hydrogen, lot in there. Yes, there's a lot that in standalone bills, Republicans would have supported. So people shouldn't be surprised that Republicans pushed back in the House on $1.5 trillion of spending, when in reality, three, four, five hundred billion of that was for climate initiatives that we couldn't even offer an amendment. And I'll just give you a really good example. I want to deal with methanes in cities and, and city landfills. 
what a perfect place to have dealt with that. I couldn't even offer an amendment right on that. So when people say, well, you didn't vote for the IRA, that doesn't mean there aren't individual provisions that we don't support. That doesn't mean that projects coming in my district, I, I have to pretend I don't like because they were funded by the IRA. Of course, I'm going to like some of these projects coming into my district. Right. Would- Are you going to be part of trying to roll back the EV tax credits or other things that seem to be a big part of the Republican plan so for I, 25? So, so how about this? Let me rephrase that question and 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 see if even my Democratic colleagues would join me in, in this. Like, we have limited number of dollars to spend on reducing emissions. Let's make sure that we're spending those dollars on those things that reduce the most emissions most effectively. So yes, when we waste money on provisions that I don't think lead us to the best outcome, I think it's my responsibility to push back. I think it's Democrats' responsibilities to push back. And if we're honest, in the IRA was a lot of shoot, ready, aim. Here's my pet project. I want it in the let's fund it in the IRA. But nobody asked the question: How much carbon does it reduce per ton? How are we spending per ton to reduce carbon? And why aren't we doubling down on something over here that reduces more carbon per ton instead of spending money on this project over here? And I think Republicans have a, a right and actually a responsibility. This is why it's important that we're at the climate table. We do need to ask tough questions, and nobody should be afraid of the answers, right? Like, there's no reason that we shouldn't have a debate about which projects should be have more money and which projects should have less money. And the IRA is not perfect. I think even my Democratic colleagues would tell you that. Remember, this bill was put together almost the middle of the night and and rushed through, and so. To, to say why you weren't can't. you able to to excuse me? Why weren't you able to offer an amendment? So because we don't control didn't control the House at the time, the way the package came and the way that we had the House rules, Republicans were just totally TikTok. The game is locked. And and by the way, that was my Democratic colleagues in the House as well. It was it's just the way the package came to the House. It was the way that the, the that Nancy Pelosi set up for the rules on that. You know, the reality of it is, if you look at any legislation that comes through as one-sided without input from the other, it's going to be pushed back on. And I'll go back to Republicans' tax reform of 2017. No wonder my colleagues, they, they would say the same thing, right? They didn't have a chance to influence that legislation. Of Democratic course, friends would say, yes, yeah, 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 sure. That was the Trump of course, tax they're going to push back on that. If you go back to the Bi- Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, where in the Senate, Democrats were given that chance. We weren't given that chance in the House. And it became bipartisan. And so, in the best of worlds, we pass bipartisan legislation because it's lasting, right? Because you don't have people taking shots at it later on. This is why all of my Democratic colleagues should cheer Republicans coming to the table to talk climate, because if they're going to do it without us, it's it's going to be attacked, right? But to the extent that we can find agreement and find things that, and, and, and I, by the way, in history, I can show you in the year 2000, we passed one of the most transformative climate bills that got totally overlooked that reduced hydrofluorobic carbons in the United States by 85%. That was bipartisan, right? And that's stuck and nobody fought right yeah. afterwards. And so- Policy durability is a big thing and that's, that's yes. fair. Now your party, the Republican Party, does control the House. Have you had a chance to sit down with Speaker Mike Johnson and talk about climate yes. and energy? So uh, I, I'm smiling because we all know Mike's just a tad bit busy, but I will tell you this. He does acknowledge my work and that it's important for Republicans. And he's got you know the, a, a number of things he's dealing with that doesn't put us on the top of his calendar, but we have a little marker in there for him in a, in a, in a week or two or three when he's got a window for me to be able to sit down with him and have this discussion. 
and you're on the Energy and Commerce Committee where most of the important legislation in this area happens, what would you like to see? What will you advocate for when you do get that sit down with the speaker? And how will you include Democrats? Yeah, so clearly the, the issue that's screaming, screaming at all of us, Republicans and Democrats, is is permitting reform. And this should be a bipartisan issue. And, and my good friend from San Diego, uh, Scott Peters, is is very active on this. He and I are sitting down and talking about a permitting uh, bill that he has out there that I, uh, I like a lot of things about. I think this can be bipartisan. I think it's a great place for uh, the speaker to jump right in and, and be supportive early on. Look, I don't care what your energy goals are. I don't care what your climate goals are. We're not going to be able to accomplish them without permitting reform. And both sides agree uh, on that issue. Well, John Curtis, thanks for coming on Climate One. And whether you stay in the House or in the Senate, come back and talk with us again. Yeah, you bet. Thanks. Bye. Coming up, why it can be hard to put aside differences and meet in the middle. Common ground's boring for press. It's not good clickbait. And actually, if you're trying to raise money, telling your contributors that the other side is evil and they're terrible and awful, that's the easier way to raise money. Building buzz on common ground. That's up next when Climate One continues. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is Climate One. I'm Ariana Brocious. And I'm Greg Dalton. Today, we're talking about bridging divides across political and cultural boundaries. We're revisiting a conversation Greg had a few months ago with two people who are working hard to develop this trust and find that common ground necessary to rebuild respectful civil discourse. That sounds good, and it's a hard thing to do. We naturally censor ourselves and avoid conflict, so we don't usually approach people who disagree with us. Yeah, to be honest, in putting this show together, I was trying to think of the last time I had a difficult conversation with someone who I knew from the outset would not agree with me. And I'm, you know, kind of drawing a blank, which is embarrassing, but it just proves the point that this is hard and we don't do it that often. I think many people feel that way. I bite my lip and dance around and, and tiptoe around those same conversations. You're not alone. One person doing this as a job is John Gable. He's co-founder and CEO of AllSides.com, a website dedicated to fighting political polarization online by presenting the same issue covered by media outlets on the left, right, and center. Mediator and attorney Joan Blades is a co-founder of MoveOn.org, a progressive organization, and now LivingRoomConversations.org, where she invites people to bring a friend from a different viewpoint to discuss really difficult topics like guns, mental health, and abortion. Joan has a real interesting group of friends. She's really good at this. John is a Republican. Joan is a Democrat. I asked them to each reflect on how it's become more difficult to have a good conversation about climate across our political divide. This interview was recorded in front of a live audience at the Commonwealth Club World Affairs. Well, politically, the story of climate was it became one of the polarization points, mm -hmm. which is kind of a tragedy. When 
In fact, what I've seen over the last 10 years is the opportunities have totally changed. The cost of clean energy is less than the cost of oil. <laughs> you know, we can do clean energy so much more effectively. It's good for the local community, good for the global community. And at this point, I think our division is causing us to not see how much we agree. There are huge opportunities, and we are just not grabbing them because we're so caught in this fight. And John, this is painful for you because you think that there's more agreement on climate than a lot of other things. Uh, so much more agreement on climate than most issues. Um, a large majority of Republicans do believe in climate change, do believe it's impact that's man-made, do believe it's impacting our lives. Um, huge majority agree with some of the specific solutions, like planting a trillion trees, or actually using cap uh, well, um, tax credits and other types of financial measures to mm -hmm. encourage better behavior. There is a lot of agreement there. And I think that's actually what we need to focus on. I mean, it, the political class um, who get elected by saying we're better than others, others guys do not emphasize common ground. Common ground's boring um, for press. It's not good clickbait. Um, and actually, if you're trying to raise money as an environmental group, saying, hey, we agree with the other side isn't necessarily the best way to raise money. Telling your contributors that the other side is evil and they're terrible and awful, that's the easier way to raise money. And so there's a lot of opportunities here to actually work together and focus on the planet. I, I think all of us who really believe in this issue, or any issue, if you will, we have to decide what's more important to us, being right about that issue, or actually the impact, solving the problem. So if you hear, if you hear me or, or somebody you're talking with saying, hey, I, I let's, let's plant a trillion trees, let's do in financial incentives to have cleaner air, and I also say, but I don't think the climate is as big of an issue as you do. I think there are other issues that are more important to me. So if you stop and listen to that and think about how you might, how we might respond to that person. If your tendency is to respond by saying, oh, the climate is really bad. You're not paying attention to these things. And, and that thing about the UN saying that some of these scenarios aren't likely to happen, da, la, 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 la. <laughs> um, that's one approach. The other approach is, do you want to plant a trillion trees? Do you want to do financial incentives? Let me help you do that. Let me introduce you to groups that want to do that. I will help you do that. The first response of saying what they're wrong about is really about me or us being right. And my gosh, we love being right. All of us do. We're human beings. We like being right. <laughs> and, but does that really save the planet? If it's more important to you to solve the problem, to address climate change, I recommend the other approach, finding the common ground, seeing where you agree, and working together to make it real. And a variation of that that I've heard is, you know, you want to be right or you want to be in relationship. And many that's people, <laughs> you know, like that's like, ooh, the relationship, right? So Joan, you know, how does that, when you're talking with people who, who have different views than you, you know, is there a little voice that, in you that wants to like spring facts or counter or go, oh, but, but, no, you'll counter them. Or do you think, oh, this is my friend. I'm going to be quiet and listen and, you know, bite my lip. Well, 
I'm not biting my lip these days. <laughs> I mean, I've, what's been really great about this is making friends like John, who I am curious, why are we seeing things? John's brilliant. John is someone I really trust at a deep level. And when we disagree, it causes me to look at what I'm thinking, what I believe, and where are the holes in it? What might, why do we see things differently? This stuff is confusing. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. it's not yeah. that it makes life simpler. It's really easy when you got black and white, but we don't. And there's actually a lot of colors in this whole system too. And you say that there's, you know, research shows that people make gut judgments about people and our brains follow. So what, is, what does that mean? And that's well, contrary yeah. to often people say, oh, it's not rational. We got to be rational. We got to be optimal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, people keep on thinking we're rational beings. And it's a nice fiction, <laughs> but over 90% of the time, if you look at the science, over 90% of the time, we're doing it by gut. And then our reason follows. We rationalize why we made the right decision. And that's human. So, you know, with my dear friend in Utah, when we started becoming friends, climate wasn't on his list of concerns. And it got on his list of concerns, not because I'm a brilliant uh, presenter on climate, but because he cares about me. Wow. He cares about the climate because he cares about you and you care about climate. Yes. And another friend of his, he has two people that he feels close to and we really care. And I care about him being concerned about being, you know, put in a position of being isolated and other, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, we care about the people we love and what they care about, and that's good. So whereas talking about climate change is really important, talking and having relationships across differences is critical also. Mm, and we need to do it en masse, <laughs> not just, you know, we have people that we've cut ourselves off from. And it just seems, John, that so many conversations where people care about something, they try to persuade over in one conversation, over one beer or one meal. And so how do you approach, is persuasion persuasive or <laughs> are there other ways to, to connect with people? Well, Joan has completely convinced me and brought me on board with the relationships first piece. Hmm. And when she and I first met, um, friends of us introduced us um, and we were at a walking around on a walk in Reston, Virginia, on some parking lot. And I, I always say that if Joan Blades asks you to go on a walk, go on that walk, because it was transformative, for, for me at least. And what we found that we were Did both, you trust her? She's a, this founder of this liberalmoveon.org thing. Did you trust her? I, I never lived in a place where most people agree with me. So I'm not, <laughs> that doesn't bother me. Um, I mean, I'm a Republican in San Francisco um, who worked for Mitch McConnell. So I'm really popular here. Um, so that's not unusual for me. And I'm actually, I, I love discovering people. I love finding that kind of brightness in them. It's just something I've learned being from Kentucky and also being in both poor areas and then very wealthy affluent areas and going back and forth to like Bar Harbor, Maine and coal mining Kentucky, I learned at an early age how people can other others, whether it's 
um, people without wealth othering those people of fortune or vice versa. And you begin to get a good sense of real character and not being caught up in the kind of covering of the book or the stereotypes. And so it was very obvious to me, what uh, anybody who meets Joan, it's, it's not hard at all to recognize the sincerity and intelligence and just, just solid person she is. And we discovered that we, are, we were working on the same thing. I came from the technology side. 25 years ago when I, um, I, I worked at Netscape, a team lead for Netscape Navigator or the product managers. And 25 years ago, I gave a speech saying how I thought the internet might actually train us to discriminate against each other in new ways. How I thought it might actually, as it evolved, divide us. And that's concerning because those of us who are working technology, those of us who stayed up obscene hours, we wanted to create this thing that made it possible for us to all have better information, to democratize, make better decisions. It was going to democratize information. And, to, and yeah. you, you can make better decisions on mm -hmm. everything in life. Mm -hmm. And we would know people as individuals around the world because we connect with them on things like Zoom today and really get to know them. That yeah. was the dream of those of us working crazy. And, and a lot of, in a lot of ways, the internet's done that. But when there's a lot of money or a lot of politics or a lot of power involved, it's doing the exact opposite. And so when we started AllSides and AllSides.com 10 years ago, as I started creating technologies, um, what I was describing was the internet's broken. It's not doing what it was intended to do. And that's both scary, but also kind of good news because that's technology, we can change that. The business models around it, we can change those. The, uh, but they, it, whether they, they speak to our better angels inside of ourselves um, or whether they pull out the worst of us. That's, the, that's what we have to develop and focus upon. And I think it's fascinating that uh, All Sides actually uses humans in that. When I saw it, I was like, oh, they've got these algorithms that are defining. It's this, it's, for those who don't, it's a site that sort of compares side by side the headlines and narratives on the left, the center, and the right. And they're labeled LLCRR. And I thought, oh, there must be some algorithms that's doing that. But you've got humans, which I find fabulously reassuring. <laughs> and I, I, I am a technologist, but I do think people get carried away with AI or, or algorithms, because all, all algorithms mean is that somebody you don't know behind a closed door decided what was important, and then they wrote the computer to decide that. So they are biased. Um, they are biased by whoever wrote them. And we were very interested in coming up with a system that, did, that was not endangered by our own biases. In all sides, we have people on the left and right and everything in between. We joke that we have never had food fights, although occasionally some of our arguments get a little bit heated. <laughs> but we, we consciously have people across the board, but that's not good enough. And journalists who really work hard to present news fairly, they're just doing it inside themselves. We all are biased. We all live in bubbles. We cannot rely just on ourselves to be fair or balanced or see the world evenly. So we created a system based on American people all across the nation to be able to take a look at different things and, and we reflect what they would see. And we use that not so much to say, oh, you news media, you're left or you're right. We use it mainly as a way to enable all of us to quickly see different perspectives on the same issue, on the same news. Because the idea of technology from my point of view is to enable human beings to do what we do best, 
think for ourselves, decide for ourselves, connect with other people. Technology should serve that, not replace that. You're listening to a conversation about what it takes to cross political divides and make progress on climate. When we come back, why we should make a habit of talking to people who disagree with us. When we have a conversation that's about a polarized topic, you don't want to get a bunch of people that agree in the room because you come away feeling more extreme. How to become less extreme. That's up next. This is Climate One. I'm Ariana Brocious. And I'm Greg Dalton. For today's show, we're channeling a Thanksgiving meal, inviting family members of all political colors to the table for some comforting food and conversation. We're talking about better ways to communicate and find mutual understanding, especially across ideological divides. Let's get back to your conversation with two people on opposite sides of the political spectrum. Joan Blades of livingroomconversations.org, a Democrat, and John Gable of allsides.com, a Republican. You spoke in front of a live audience at the Commonwealth Club World Affairs in San Francisco. So, Joe, when you're talking to your conservative friends, um, you know, in Berkeley, where you live, people talk about planet and Earth and, and you know, and, and others talk about markets and other jobs. So how do you do you are you careful about the language you use be, to try to use the other person's um, more familiar, more comfortable language? Absolutely. And all the we have over 150 living room conversation guides from topics like trust to guns and responsibility. And, you know, depending on what you're interested in, when I started living room conversations, it was to be about climate and energy. And we rapidly learned we should just have an energy conversation because people that don't believe in climate aren't coming to a climate and energy. Yeah, but, but energy, you can get them in. If you, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And the people yeah. that care about climate, they'll hear about that in the process. Over time, I've come to believe that have a conversation about anything. It's that relationship and starting to soften these boundaries that we've been creating between each other that's most important. I mean, talking about the technology, there is a thing about algorithms that's really problematic because with Facebook and you know all these different platforms, if it causes anger, fear, <laughs> anxiety, it's more likely to get shared. And the yep. algorithm is to get maximum profit, which is maximum sharing. So we have to become intentional about what we are taking in. That's why I love all sides, because that's the way of saying, actually, I want to see the full picture. And all sides is being used in schools in every state of the union because for teachers, you know, if a teacher shows one article, they are at risk of being attacked by parents for bias. But with all sides, it's like, it's all there. (laughs) It's okay. Uh, So you're a safe thing. John, do you think that some of your liberal friends are are too shrill and and over-worried about climate? Uh, Interesting. I'm actually not, I think everybody's, in one issue or the other, there's always people who are too shrill or too worried on any issue. The, I don't know if that's fair. It's interesting, I don't really think about it that way. 
I do think that a lot of people on the right are do think folks on go too far in that direction. Alarmist. Oh, it's not as bad, the climate. Oh, yeah. and, and they lose a little credibility when they kind of push some things like, um, and that's, but I think that there's always a debate on any issue on different sides on what's the solution. There are always people who'd be a little bit more extreme. Um, I, I, I think there's a, that's always going to happen, particularly in an open society like ours. You have different extremes arguing different pieces. I think the real question is, is what works? What do we do? And Joan mentioned that three and a half percent of people, 75% of Americans would prefer news that's not slanted one way or the other, or 78%, my apologies, from Pew Research. And that's a big change from just two years before that, where it was in the mm. 60s. Mm. We have... 3.5% of the people of America being engaged in some, in some kind of idea for a movement to succeed. If you only talk about voters, that's like five and a half million people or a little over 10 million people who's just talking about adults. That's a very achievable number. This is not like just something we threw out there. We're talking specifically about how to engage that number of people in ways that really solve problems. Because when you get the number of people engaged, culture changes, policy changes. Mm -hmm. And the fact that there are some people who may be more shrill or one way on the, oh, the, you know, the extremes <clears throat> on either side of the issue, I, I try not to be disrespectful about it, but to, to some extent, they don't really matter. <laughs> the, the people who matter are the ones who are trying to solve the problem, who are truly listening to each other to solve the problem, to avoid the pitfalls of either extreme. And so if you really believe in the data, you got to commit to the processes that work to lead to better solutions, which includes open conversation with people who disagree with us, who aren't experts in the area, in order to get the better solution decided and acted upon. And that's our opportunity. So one of the things that's exciting, you know, COVID caused us not to be here for a couple of years, but we've got tens of millions of people that are really comfortable having conversations by Zoom now. Mm -hmm. We have a problem with local connection. Mm -hmm. You also have a problem with national trust and connection. It would be possible if people were ready to show up. To and we've had sister city and sister faith community conversations. We could do this at a massive level if people wanted to. Now, what makes this harder than what I did with my, you know, folks years ago with Move On, is you just signed a petition, you wrote a sentence about why, you know, you wanted to censure and move on. This requires showing up. Well, with re relationships your, are harder. They take a lot yes. of time and like they're kind of messy and like you get vulnerable. So but they're great. And they're we have wonderful. a problem with loneliness in this country. Yes. And, and isolation and belonging. So it's the answer as well as the hard thing. <laughs> it, it's both the hard thing and what everybody in the nation and the world who are feeling alone are craving. We are wired to be tribal. We are wired to go against each other. We're also wired and needing connection. Mm -hmm. And connection against across differences means that I can show you who I really am rather than what I'm supposed to be according to the TikTok videos or whatever that has to be, which really damages us psychologically. So yes, it takes more work, but it is really, as Joan points out, fun and much more fulfilling at a deeper level that we, we as society need this. 
even outside of climate change, we as a society need to, under, to learn how to connect and disagree to, in order to share who we really are and, and be more fulfilled as human beings and healthier. Last year, a book was written called The Power of Strangers, just about, Joe Keohane wrote it, and it just all this data about how we're better off when we talk to strangers. We have fears about that, and we have to overcome them. But we're happier, we're healthier. It brings our day up. And so this is actually creating a context where we shift the story so that we're people that talk to strangers. But the beauty of the one form of living room conversations was it was two friends. Each invite two friends. So it's that personal invitation. You get to meet a couple strangers. You get to see a couple friends. And then you have a conversation that goes deeper than it otherwise would. A lot of people during COVID used the conversation guides to take care of family. And, you know, one mom said, you know, it was great. I got to know my nephews in ways I never would have otherwise. They live in another state and I got to take care of my mother. She lived in another state. And so it connect, you know, it can connect families. It can connect old high school friends. Sometimes people have done it that way. But it's being intentional. Well, you know, John, in the political system, however, I hear that we're wired for this, we need this, and the business and political incentives are all going toward the extremes for the clicks and the primary wins. So does it, what does that mean? We have to change culture first? Well, you're seeing, we're seeing in a lot of hard data, a real rebellion against that. So uh, Churchill's old quote was, America will always do the right thing after it's tried everything else. <laughs> I think we've been trying everything else recently. And now we're going, that's not working. And there is a shift. There's over 5,000 organizations nationwide, according to something that Princeton did, that are focused on bridging divides. Mm -hmm. the, <laughs> the demand for something other than the pundits yelling at each other is real. And the fact that news in America has the lowest level of trust in any nation, well, top 45 nations in the world, according to Pew, there is less trust in America for our news system than any other nation. And the more and more they go for that clickbait and just taking one agenda or the other or just emphasizing the differences and never dealing with the problems, the more and more their credibility will go down. That's the biggest problem in news media today is their lack of credibility, or what I say, the lack of trustworthiness. Not that we don't trust them, but they're not worthy of our trust. We're trying to help them and give them tools to be more worthy again and earn back that trust and help us get together and solve problems. And I'd say it's something even more than unhappy with the news. It's like, it's causing people to turn it off because it makes them unhappy. It makes them anxious. It makes them oh, fearful. Uh, my wife can't stand watching it. She's a disgusted. And, and I think I have another problem. I, I take in too much of it. So I've been trying to have a news diet lately because I realize it's kind of toxic for me. Like, uh, do I really need that one more article about whatever it is? Like, is that making me is that, like, and that's kind of a hard thing to, to have an information budget, a diet, just like, that's enough. I read a whole book about how, how it's bad for you to like, really limit your news intake. So, yeah, what does that say? 
listen to more podcasts. That's that's what I think. <laughs> yes, this is upbeat. This is positive solution. And also to and yeah, and, and to have a little bit of variety because I think we get on this wheel of like inhaling information, and somehow I feel like the more I know the I don't know something, the better better I am, or the yeah. the more effective you know the more I know than you. So ha ha, I know more than you. you I don't know. So the question is, as we try and know more, so we can persuade our friends, uh-huh. is have you actually persuaded someone that really disagrees with you. Now, persuading people that agree with you is really easy because you know they're biased to agree and- Aren't we so smart and virtuous? <laughs> yes. And that's one of the interesting things about the living room conversations. When we have a conversation that's about a polarized topic, you don't want to get a bunch of people that agree in the room because you come away feeling more extreme mm-hmm, about that. Mm-hmm. You really want to be very intentional about differences in that room. Um, and there are all sorts, you know, depending on the conversation you're having, it can be age differences, it can be cultural differences, it can be political differences, gender differences, it all depends. And so one thing, you, what you mentioned just brought up for me, you know, villainization. It's so easy to villainize and, and raise money you know, a lot of, you know, move on raises a lot of money, villainizing so-and-so, or, you know, it's, it, it's good to raise money. So, you know, let's talk about villainization, which is part of this, this polarization, because there are some people in the climate world who are villainizing oil companies and like say, oh, you talk to an oil company or you whatever, like you're suspect. Maybe that's back to the purity test. But let's talk about villainization, John. What do you see? Well, that's, that's a tried and true American um, entertaining thing to do. I mean, back early days, we've always done that, but there was a difference. Back then, when we had villain, I mean, articles written by Ben Franklin or the Tories or Common Sense, they were really, really out there and villainizing each other. Vicious. I mean, we're we're, we're kind of tame to a lot of the things that (laughs) they were written back there. But there was a difference then. The difference is that the people reading those articles First of all, they knew that that was from Ben Franklin, the Tory. So they already knew the point of view of that news. They, were, they did not believe that news was somehow accurate. They realized that they were different opinions. They were party papers. Yeah. yeah. And um, I, the time in America, the Walter Cronkite period, where this is the way it is, was really an aberration in history. Most of American history and most of history in all nations I'm aware of have always had kind of partisan, different news organizations trying to persuade you. So one thing is that they had a higher level of media literacy, the people who were reading these pamphlets. They understood that what they were reading wasn't necessarily true. And as we, I mean, less trust in news is good to some extent, but if we give up on news, then we get our news somewhere else, like social media or, or random stuff, and that's even worse. So a little bit of news and media literacy is important. The other thing that was different is that if Joan and I were back then in the 1770s, um, sure, she was reading that rag from the Tories, but she helped me get my plow unstuck from my yard the other day, and we Uh, knew each other as people. Right, yeah. And that is a huge difference to know people out there. Um, And so knowing people outside of our world. When we only know our world, we become really confidently ignorant because we know 10% of the story, and we hear it 8,000 times, so we are absolutely true. We're more confident and less knowledgeable, and we less relationship than others, and that's just a bad combination all around. We have self-sorted in an amazingly effective way. Yeah. 
And so it's sorting in our, I mean, I live in Berkeley. I can speak about this with great confidence. Um, but where we live, where we get our information in so many ways, and in those places where the mix is, there's a lot of discomfort and there are a lot of flags people put up so that they can talk about the weather <laughs> uh, rather than about things that are really meaningful. And that's, that's one reason this is such a good practice Rather, it's not a one-time thing. It's a practice. And right. faith communities and libraries, communities are saying, okay, we need this because they have found that there are these gaps and people are isolated in all sorts of ways that are not good for us. It's important in schools too. Um, schools, kids learn this more quickly, more easily, but it is a big part of why we're so popular in schools. The, Joan and I did the All Sites for Schools and now Classroom Conversations together. But they, they, it's actually a skill to learn how to listen to somebody you disagree with. To really listen to understand, not listen to answer, not to listen to say how they're wrong, but to listen to understand that human being. And it's important, particularly in communities that may be more divided or have great crisis. It's great if you do it beforehand, but when you hit that crisis, you, we need those skills. These are human skills. Human beings learn this well, but we need the opportunity. We need the tools online in our modern world where most of the tools are doing the opposite. We need to provide people who want these tools to be able to hear each other and connect better. And, and we're building those to make that massively available to people. Right, all the incentives and tools are for transmitting, not for, for receiving. That's right. We want and to be right. We want everybody to know that I'm right, um, yeah. as opposed to tools for hearing and understanding others and connecting with others. On Climate One Today, we've been discussing Bridging the Great American Divide with Joan Blades, co-founder of Living Room Conversations, and John Gable, co-founder of allsides.com. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to John and Joan for joining us. Thank you all. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. As we heard today, talking about climate and many other subjects can be really hard, and it's really crucial and important because that's how we build connection and actually make progress together. Right, and conversations involve listening, and one thing I need to remember is listen with my mouth shut. <laughs> and, you know, as we head into the holidays, maybe consider having one of these difficult conversations. If you need inspiration, go back to our archive on climateone.org, find one of our shows, and maybe send it to that friend. Ariana Brocious is co-host, editor, and producer. Brad Marsland is our senior producer. Managing director is Jenny Park. Austin Colon is producer and editor. Our production manager is Megan Basilia. Wensi Shade is our development manager. Ben Testani is our communications manager. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy and Philip Yun are co-CEOs of the Commonwealth Club World Affairs, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.